The following message comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. One of the most beautiful parts of this Advent or Christmas season, the build-up to it, um, specifically as Christians, reflecting on what Christ has done, are the symbols that are evoked this time of year. So vivid pictures that stick in our minds of light, of stars, of mangers, of gifts, presenting of gifts, of lambs. All of these are, are sung in many of our songs. They're put on our Christmas cards. Um, they're, they're vivid images and pictures that we can imagine because we have likely seen these things, maybe the exception of mangers, except for children's plays. But they have a way of, of capturing our imagination, making something intangible, such as love or hope or peace or joy, making it tangible, something we can see, something we can wrap our minds around in that way. And so in that sense, I think many of the narratives around Christmas season and Jesus' birth help us to, to connect to concrete things that remind us of these truths about God and what he has done. And this morning we're going to, to read and to talk about um, the, the Matthew account, or a good chunk of the Matthew account of Jesus' birth. And we're going to see these symbols. We're going to see these images, many of which we've already sung about, many of which, again, you've seen on cards um, and evoked that way. But what I'd like to do as we focus on um, this narrative is really to present a contrast. As you can see up on the screen, a tale of two kings. Um, there's a lot of other details that we can focus in on this chapter, but I want to specifically paint that contrast, a tale of two kings. And to examine this contrast that's found in the text but as we do so, hopefully, to ask some hard questions of our own hearts. And that is, who is our king? Who will we bow and worship to? And so uh, what I'm going to do this morning, because for one, it's a very familiar narrative. And for two, uh, it is uh, early Sunday morning after all these holidays and after times in which we've been going and moving and maybe you're up late with people and other things. And so to keep our attention and our mind focused, I'm going to do something a little bit different um, in our scripture reading. If you've ever seen this, maybe in children's books where you come to a certain page and it's highlighted. And as you read that, the kids read the word with you on the page. So here's what we're going to do. As we read, we're going to read all of chapter two. Every time I mention the name Herod, okay, I want you to echo back just the phrase, the king. Okay, so practice with me here. Okay, if I'm reading in the days of Herod... Man, you guys are good. All right. Okay. Here's the second command or the second request, I should say. I shouldn't command you. But the second request is when I get to the phrase, the child, which we're going to see several times in our text, I want you to say that phrase with me. Okay. So if we're reading along, for example, in Matthew 2, verse 8, and it says, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for a child. Very good. Okay. So your job this morning. Okay. Just two, two things. The Herod echo back the King. When we get to the child, say it together with me. Okay. Think we can do that. All right. Let's jump into Matthew chapter two. And, um, it is page 863 in the black pew Bibles, which some of you have there. If you would like to turn to that. All right. Let's read God's word. Matthew two, verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea and the days of Herod, 
good. Behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now when Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah, another word for an anointed king, was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for from you will come forth a ruler, also a king, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, that is Herod, they went on their way and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went on ahead of them until it came to a stop over the place where the child was to be found. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after they came into the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And after being warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child. Sorry, I didn't wait for you. (laughs) My bad. And his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He stayed there until the death of Herod. This happened so that what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent men and killed all the boys who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity who were two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and settled in a city called Nazareth. This happened so that what was spoken through the prophets would be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. May God bless his word. Good job, by the way. Nice work. Hopefully everybody stayed awake through, through our reading. Um, But as you can see, hopefully just in our reading here, the child and Herod the king are put in contrast all throughout this story. And so we're going to see this contrast. And I'd like to first focus on Herod. And Herod, I'm um, entitling the illegitimate king. And the question I want to ask in this 
First focus on Herod is this. What kind of a king acts this way? What kind of a person does what Herod does? Behaves like this to his people. What drives him to say and do what he does? What kind of a king is this? A little bit of background before we get into the text about Herod. Um, We know quite a bit about him. Uh, contemporaries who wrote about him and those who were shortly after him. He was born in 73 BC of an Edomite family. If you're familiar with the story um, in the Bible about the Edomites, they were an Arabic people descended from Esau as opposed to Jacob. Uh, Many of them converted to a form of Judaism, kind of a mixture of different beliefs, but they were always seen as outsiders. They were not seen as as welcome um, among the Jews in that way. His father was given a title by the Romans, was given land to rule, and was even granted Roman citizenship by Julius Caesar himself. So Herod was appointed the king of Judea by the Roman Senate in 40 BC. And by 37, he had crushed all opposition to his rule with the help of the Roman army. Okay, So you have an outsider who was given title, was given citizenship by Rome, was given this place to rule through all kinds of wheelings and dealings, which we won't get into. And now he is seen as ruling over Judea, the most sacred or holy part of Israel, which encompasses Jerusalem. In his rule, he was was very clever. He gained, maintained favor of multiple Roman politicians over the years. He was also very successful at many building projects, um, including the largest artificial harbor in the Mediterranean, He built the fortress Masada, which maybe you've heard about. It was built as a refuge in case of Jewish revolt, which happened a lot in that part of the world at that time. He built the city of Caesarea, which would later be the headquarters for Rome um, in Palestine. And most famously, uh, the building that he is known for uh, is the expansion of the second temple, which is often called Herod's Temple. And so all through the New Testament, when they're going to the temple, Jesus and the apostles and others, it is Herod's temple that he helped expand to get favor with the people and, um, and to, gain, uh, to gain respect in that way. But I'd like to focus, as we think about this illegitimate king, on two aspects that we see in this text. Two aspects of him as a person that seem to drive him, that seem to lead to the kind of king, the kind of ruler that he was. And the first aspect is that he was an insecure ruler. He was incredibly insecure. We know this from the background, much of which I talked about, that he was constantly looking to get favor from Rome. He was constantly looking over his shoulder at the the Jewish leaders and others, and even among his family, for someone who might take him out because he was an outsider. He didn't belong as a ruler in Israel this way. So he was an outsider, ethnically, religiously. He could not get full support of the people. Not only was he an outsider, an outsider as far as ethnically, but he was grossly immoral. He had no business leading God's people, ruling over them in this way. Um, uh, We believe that he had up to nine different wives. Um, One of them was a Samaritan. Okay, I mean, the list just piles on for reasons why the Jews would not have wanted him as their ruler. He added and removed wives to seek his pleasure, to get political advantage. He was incredibly immoral and fickle in this way. He was also brutal in how he maintained order and power, looking for threats everywhere. In fact, he was so insecure about these threats that he had his former, formerly beloved wife killed along with her two sons, her grandfather, 
and her mother. Okay, this guy was paranoid about his rule. And finally, towards the end of his life, out of paranoia, he disinherited and eventually had his firstborn son executed so he could maintain power through the end of his life. In the end of his, his life, Herod suffered from an awful disease. I'll let you read the details on your own. It's called Herod's evil. It was an awful, debilitating disease. And as he neared the end, he was in Jer- Jericho. He was so worried, historians tell us, that no one would mourn over his death, that one of his last decrees was that many prominent men from all over the land would come and be brought to Jericho and would be executed so that their wives and their families would mourn on the day of his death. So he couldn't, he couldn't garner enough favor from the people himself, from his rule, from his legitimacy, etc., that even in his dying wish, he wanted the people to mourn, even if it wasn't legitimate. He would force them to mourn in that way. Thankfully, they didn't carry out this wish to the best of our knowledge, and they were not executed in this way. But we have an incredibly insecure ruler painting the background here. Well, where do we see this in our text? Well, first of all, we see that he had incredible fear over the Magi's message. This is the first eight verses of our passage. So we have these Magi coming from the east, arriving in Jerusalem, looking for this king. And um, this morning, we're not going to focus a lot of time and attention on the Magi, but I do want to just highlight, because it comes up and it's in the narrative, who were these guys, right? What were they doing here? How did they get there? Uh, We don't know. Um, all the details, uh, but this, the term that was used was often describing those who were interested in dreams, those who read about astrology, prediction from the stars, magic, books that predicted the future, etc. Um, they might have been from Persia, could be from Babylon, or uh, a desert region east of Israel. But, but these, these magi, these astrologers, who looked to the stars for signs, who are curious about these supernatural things, they came and they asked this question. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, all this background about Herod, how do you think he received this message? Not very well, right? This is the guy who's constantly looking over his shoulder, who's having people executed, who's doing everything he can to maintain power in Rome, to maintain control over the people, to even build up their temple so that they'll get favor in this way. He did not receive this well. And, and another question that comes up is, well, how did these magi know this, right? Like, like, where did this come from? It could be that they had gotten some type of revelation from God. We're not sure. The text doesn't say It could be that they had read uh, about this coming Messiah from certain Jewish writings, such as Daniel or other prophets or other works. Um, That's very possible, as Daniel was was in Babylon. We're not exactly sure. Um, It was common for astrologers to look to the stars for direction, and when a special king or monarch or important person would be born, they would often look to the stars and constellations to see if there's some message that was there. And so it could be that they had their eye towards the stars in this way, combined with either that text of Scripture or some type of revelation. We're not sure. But it is clear that this was a supernatural phenomenon. This was not an ordinary event. Um, Scientists, including even Christian scientists, have tried to speculate, you know, was it a comet? Was it alignment of planets? Was it a supernova? Was it a dying star? Um, It's fun to speculate, but we don't know for sure. But it is clear that it was a supernatural event that was happening. Uh, We know this later in the text because the star was actually moving to direct them down to Bethlehem. Okay, So this was not an ordinary flash of light in the sky. 
So these magi come to this insecure king and they ask this loaded question. We're coming to worship a new king. They come to Jerusalem, the likely place for kings to be born. And what does the text say of Herod's reaction in verse 3? When he heard this, Herod, this insecure king, was troubled. It's like, no kidding, right? He was troubled. He was agitated. He was on edge. He was incredibly fearful of this message. And notice, though, what verse 3 says. It wasn't just Herod who was troubled, who was disturbed by this. Who else was bothered by it? All of Jerusalem with him. Now, why? We, it makes sense, right? We understand the insecure Herod. That makes sense, why he was insecure why, or why he was troubled. But why all Jerusalem? Why, why were they so bothered by this? Why were they so troubled? Well, could be at least a couple things. One, many of the important leaders and officials in Jerusalem were likely troubled. Okay? Remember, background. This guy had, had his own family executed. Um, uh, we know that there were at least seven, maybe upwards of nine chief priests that were put into power and taken down in power in the 30-something years that Herod ruled. Okay? So if you're a chief priest, you're a ruler in Israel, you are very insecure because you don't know if you're going to have your job. You don't know if you're going to be executed for not failing to please him in some way. And so it's likely all the people in power who had, uh, who relied on Herod for keeping them in power were very nervous. What is he going to do? Is he going to go off on us as well? And, and it's also very likely that the common people in Jerusalem who heard this message that these guys, these astrologers come and they ask Herod, this insecure king, where is this king to be born? News spreads and people are like, uh-oh, Herod's about to go off, right? Here's another crackdown. What is he going to do? Everyone was on high alert at this news. And so Herod does an interesting thing. In verses 4 through 6, he gathers, it says in verse 4, all the chief priests and scribes of the people to ask them where this Messiah is going to be born. And so here in this description of the chief priests, likely the Sadducees, some of them, um, as I said, at least seven high priests were appointed in his rule. So uh, not sure exactly who it was uh, of the chief priests, but many of the Sadducees were brought together. And it says he also brought the scribes, which would be the teachers of the law, likely the Pharisees. Okay. And what do you know about the Sadducees and Pharisees? They didn't get along. They didn't like each other. They were constantly at war. They were constantly feuding with their different interpretations of scripture, different politics. They were about like a far right uh, Republican and a far left Democrat getting together for Thanksgiving dinner. Okay. <laughs> or Christmas dinner. Okay. But Herod, in his effort to figure out where this supposed new king is coming from, brings together these factions, whether it was one at a time or together, but he inquires of them to gather this info. And it's interesting here, again, I'm sure they're pretty nervous <laughs> going in. What are we going to tell this crazed king uh, about this, this Messiah? But, but they give him the right answer. It says in verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, because the prophets tell of this. So they, they tell him exactly what the prophets say. Matthew quotes Micah 5 and 2 Samuel 5. And he, they point out the fact that this ruler, this legitimate Messiah or king of Israel, is to be born in Bethlehem. 
And just a, a quick pause here. It's, it's sad that these religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, they had the right information, right? They knew exactly where he was to be born. They knew where to look in the prophets for this answer. And yet, they had the right answer, but they really didn't care about Herod's question, did they? They really didn't care where this Messiah was to be born. Um, scholars say that the Sadducees didn't focus much on a coming Messiah. Some didn't even believe that there would be a Messiah. The Pharisees did believe in a coming Messiah, but they rejected the signs that pointed to Jesus being the Messiah. So they had all the right answers to give to this illegitimate Edomite king, and yet they themselves had no concern to go and to find this Messiah. And so Herod Instead of sending the Pharisees and Sadducees or any of the religious leaders, he gathers these pagan astrologers and welcomes them in and says, Hey guys, I have a secret mission for you. He sounds very pious, right? In verse 8. Sounds very religious. Go, search carefully for this child. When you found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Now, we don't know if the religious leaders were in the room this happened, but if they were, they were probably doing the biggest eye roll in history, right? <laughs> they knew that Herod was not intending to go and worship this king. But the slick, conniving, insecure Herod thinks he's duped the Magi into going on this secret mission to tell him where the king is going to be born. And so, recapping Herod here, he's a serial worrier, constantly paranoid at being overthrown or recalled from Rome. He hears about a Jewish king of the Jews, assembles the religious experts from all different sides and perspectives, asks them where the Messiah is to be born, and employs the visiting pagan astrologers to give him the location of the king. Again, the screams of insecurity, of mistrust, and of paranoia. What kind of king rules like this? What kind of king ruling over and leading over God's covenant people would act like this. But not only is he an insecure ruler, second, we see that he is an arrogant leader. We're going to skip down to verse 16. We'll come back. Um, we'll pick up in verse 9 uh, in a little bit. But notice, after Herod is duped by the Magi, notice what his response is. After he's tricked by the Magi, he was furious. That word enrage means put into a passion, okay? It's like, like dumping hot liquid out. It, it overwhelmed him that he, the ruler of the, of the land of Judea, would be tricked by these pagan astrologers. He was, not being used, he was not used to being told no or being tricked or deceived by other people. And so look what his arrogance leads him to do. We see in verse 16b, he becomes enraged. He sent men and killed all the boys in Bethlehem and all its vicinity, two years old or under, according to the time determined from the Magi. And so between this and other indicators, it's likely that Jesus would have been between six months or up to 20 months old by this time. And so just to make sure Herod has all the, the male children, two and under, um, killed in this way. And it seems that it was very immediate. It says it was, he was in a fit of rage. He sent them right away to go and to kill them. 
Bethlehem is only about five miles south of Jerusalem. So it wouldn't have taken these men long to get there and to carry out his awful, um, his awful actions. And so likely his plan originally was as the Magi come back to him and say, here's where he is. He's in this, he's in this area. He's in this house, etc." that he would send his men right to that house. But without their information, he just decides to eliminate all threats in this way. There's a, a couple points to just note here because um, this question comes up and, and especially in a lot of secular literature, they question this because we don't have any extra biblical records of this of this killing that happens. Um, but it, it, it's very much in keeping with what we know about Herod. Remember all the other people that I talked about that he went off and had killed and executed. And so um, it's very much in keeping with this character. But but also um, noting the fact that um, at this time, Bethlehem was a, a fairly small town and the areas around it. And so um, they estimate that it could have been as much as a dozen, maybe two dozen boys that were killed, which was no doubt still awful, which is terrible um, and, and horrific that a king would do this. But it sort of makes sense that it, it wouldn't be written down or wouldn't be it would have been made a big deal in that sense, because Herod was doing awful acts like this quite often at this time. But we know in verses 9 through 15, which we'll get back to, that Jesus was spared, that he was not among the uh, children that were um, executed in this way. But notice Herod's arrogance here, his arrogant plan, that he thought he could thwart God's plan, which would, was announced time and time again all through the ages, which was uh, planned in eternity past that he could wipe out this threat, this promised Messiah, this one who would save the people. This insecure Edomite, this puppet ruler from Rome, thought that he could shake his fists before Almighty God and stop his plans. After all, he was Herod the Great. But really, he acts just like Psalm 2 Two describes. It says this, the kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed or his Messiah, the king. And so he has these innocent children killed, hoping to get rid of this imposing child king, just like he had wiped out threats before. But notice verse 19, his insecurity and his arrogance come to an end one day. Verse 19 says, when Herod died. You see, Herod, just like all of us, um, his, his, his rule ended, his reign ended, and, and his life ended. He, in the end, was accountable to God for all of his actions, for all of the suffering he put others through, for all of his evil, for all of his fists that he raised uh, thwarting God and trying to flaunt God's plan. And in fact, historians say that in his death, this horrible illness that he had. He was in so much pain that he attempted suicide uh, by stabbing, but was prevented from taking his own life. And as I said, in one of his final acts, he asked that people be brought and killed and slaughtered so that people would mourn for him. So at the very end, he had a high-handed fist towards God, acted in his insecurity and in his arrogance. And so this Arabic ruler over Jewish land connected to mighty leaders such as Julius Caesar. He was friends of Mark Antony. He knew uh, Augustus, built these magnificent cities and even the temple structure. But in the end, he died an insecure, arrogant man who thought he could defy the living God and his plan for the Messiah. But in the end, Herod was the one who was, 
who was deceived. He was the one who was tricked. His plan was not taken into action. And so our question is, what kind of king is like this? What kind of ruler rules and leads his people this way? But we might also ask this question. What kind of person is ruled by insecurities, trying to prove themselves, trying to make themselves look better than they are, or to not look as bad as some perceive them to be? What kind of person would think that they can live apart from God, could live life according to their own rules and think that they can get away with it? What kind of person does this, acts like this, takes a little bit of religion over here, mixes it with their own ideas of how they can please God and honor him? What kind of person pursues their own ambition, weaving together what other people can do for them for their life plan? What kind of person has a heart like this? You see, as it turns out, no, no, we're not probably as awful and as barbaric and as maybe as arrogant or insecure as Herod. But lying within us all is a similar perspective, an insecurity that we think we are not acceptable to God, that we're not acceptable to others. And so we can try to do things to compensate for it in the way that we act, in the way that we talk, in mixing and sprinkling in a little bit of religion on the side, a little bit of holiday cheer and goodness to get favor, not only before people, but also before God. We might not kill off threats. We might not act on every immoral lust like Herod did with his nine wives. But the source of the world's evil, the sin that marks Herod's life, that marked the religious leaders and their arrogance towards God, also marks our lives that that same evil is found in every one of us. One of the, um, I think, anthems of this that you could say in a, in a popular song by Frank Sinatra, so you might have listened to tunes in the stores or on the radio, Christmas tunes and other things, but he, he wrote another song that he's known for that just really resonates this heart of Herod, this arrogance and this insecurity, and that's the song, I Did It My Way. So, so listen to a few of these words and see if it doesn't resonate with a guy like Herod. But be careful. See if it doesn't resonate with your own heart at times. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. Regrets, I've had a few. But then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Yes, it was my way. Herod didn't know this song, but if he, had, if he could have had it sung at his funeral, it would have been very, very appropriate. You see, out at our core, outside of God's our intervention in our hearts, to change our hearts, to change the worship of our hearts, we are all about self-preservation, just like Herod. We're all about 
um, this insecurity, like, like children on a playground, wondering who likes us, wondering how we can get others' favor, wondering even if we can do enough good things to get a God to convince us to let him in to his heaven. We want to do it our way. And here's how Paul describes everyone's heart in Romans 8. It says, in our natural state, Paul says, the mind set on the flesh, that is myself, my desires, my way, the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We look at a life like here and we say, well, obviously his life didn't please God. Obviously he didn't match up. No doubt we put Herod up there with all the rulers and dictators, awful people out there. And yet when it comes to examining our own hearts, when it comes to how we measure up, how we, uh, how we line up before God and before his judgment one day, are we going to be much different if we stand in our own, if we stand in our own righteousness? And so we could ask, what kind of king does this? What kind of ruler, what kind of leader of the people does this? And yet we really need to ask the question, what kind of person does this? What kind of person desires their own throne, desires their own kingdom, desires their own rule? And I'd have to raise my hand and say, I do. (laughs) On my own, this is the inclination of my heart. And if you're honest, you would say the same. And so this first king that we see, this illegitimate king, is arrogant, he's insecure, he lives life his own way, and in the end, he goes and meets his maker. He, he faces judgment for what he has done. But thankfully, there's another king in our story. Remember that child that you, you repeated time and time and time and time again? Let's look at this child. You know, I'm going to describe as the legitimate savior. In contrast to the illegitimate, insecure, arrogant King Herod, we see this promised one, this long-awaited ruler, Jesus, the Messiah. But what's fascinating about his coming, his description in Matthew, is he does not come as you would expect him, right? He comes in an earth-shattering way and in every possible way. Luke focuses um, a lot on, on Mary and her reaction to being a, a virgin and yet bearing the Christ child. Matthew focuses quite a bit on Joseph, starting with his lineage um, that is connected through Abraham, through David. Um, and then it leads on into his, his appearance with the angels and on in this way. But I want to ask this question as we look at this legitimate Savior is what kind of Savior comes like this? What kind of Savior comes in the way that Matthew describes? And I want to look at three specific qualities that we see in our narrative here. The first is that he is praised by pagan Gentiles. We see this in verses 1 and 2 with the coming of the Magi, as well as verse 6 and then 9 through 11. So Luke records the shepherds coming to visit Jesus a lowly audience, but not too shocking given the location to Bethlehem. They they were still Jewish uh, men, maybe boys who were coming to worship him. But Matthew's visitors, several months or a year plus after Jesus' birth, are shocking. What are these Gentile astrologers from the east doing, traveling all the way to Israel, to this small village of Bethlehem, to bring these expensive gifts to this Jewish baby boy? This was... No doubt shocking to the Jews who would have heard this. 
Matthew hints at the roles, at the role that Gentiles will play in worshiping Jesus the Messiah in his genealogy. So five women are mentioned specifically in the line of Christ by Matthew. Four of the five are, are Gentiles. And so we have Tamar, we have Rahab, we have Ruth, we have Bathsheba by association with her husband Uriah, who is a Hittite. Mary is the only Jewish figure, uh, female figure mentioned here. And so in this way, connecting him to Abraham and the promise that through Abraham, all of the nations will be blessed. There's a hint that Matthew gives right from the beginning that this king, this Messiah, the Savior who's coming, is not coming in a way that people will expect. And so they follow this star, this supernatural phenomenon, and it leads them to Bethlehem. It leads them to this Christ child. And, and as we think of Old Testament texts, again, there's hints that something like this would happen. Psalm 72 says this, May the kings of Tarshish, faraway lands, and of the islands bring gifts. May the kings of Sheba and Seba offer tributes. And may all kings bow down before him and all nations serve him this Messiah who was to come. Isaiah 60, which we read earlier, says this, The wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you. They will bring gold and frankincense and proclaim good news of the praises of the Lord. So there were hints that these special visitors were going to come, but nobody would have expected it this way. The irony here is that Gentile pagan astrologers came from far away to worship this Jewish child king, Despite their outside status, despite their limited knowledge, their limited revelation that they had, they came and worshipped him. And yet, by contrast, the Jewish leaders were apathetic. Herod was hostile. Even though they had access to the writings, they could point to where it said this Messiah was going to come. And yet, the announcement that Matthew focuses on is by these pagan Gentiles. But isn't this often how God works? We have a way of thinking how God should operate, a plan in place that this is what he should do. This is what he should say. This is how he should act. But often God flips that on its end. Jesus often confused and even frustrated those who came to hear him, right? They came expecting him to to get rid of Rome. They came expecting him to, to praise those who were very religious, to praise those who kept the fast and did all these things publicly. And yet what did Jesus say? He said, I came for the sick. I came for those who need a rescue. I came for those who know they have no other recourse. These are the people I came for, Jesus says. He isn't a savior that you can put into your own little box. Jesus came to shatter boxes, to break paradigms. And we see that right from the beginning, the fact that pagan Gentiles are coming to worship him. Even though the Jewish leaders don't acknowledge him, God sends these pagan Gentiles to announce his birth. What kind of savior does this? What kind of king would act in this way? So we see that he's praised by the Gentiles. The second aspect I want to highlight is that he is preserved by God. Before we even get to Herod and his evil plan in Matthew 2, we see the angel of the Lord convincing Joseph earlier uh, in, in Matthew chapter 1 to take Mary as his wife. As, as it, it notes here, Joseph was going to, to break off the betrothal, to put her away secretly because of the shocking announcement. But an angel comes and convinces Joseph to keep Mary. 
so that they would be together, so that they would come to Bethlehem, so that he would raise Jesus as his legal father, even though not biological. And so right from the beginning, we see that God super, uh, superintends and intervenes to keep his plan in place through an angel. In fact, there are five instances in which through a dream or angels, God supernaturally intervenes in chapters 1 and 2. In his arrogance, Herod thought that he could thwart God's plan. He thought he could send the Magi as his spies. He thought he could send his men to wipe out this, this threat who was coming against him. And yet we see God's hand of protection. Psalm 2, 2, uh, as I read before, it says, The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers conspire together against the Lord, against his anointed. But if you go on two verses later, Psalm 2, 4 says this, He, that is God, who sits in the heavens, laughs. The Lord scoffs at them all. You see, many people have plans. The Bible says men make plans, but it is God who directs their steps. God was preserving Jesus' life. He was preserving God's plan. He was protecting this plan that was there from eternity past. Despite Herod's best efforts, God was several steps ahead of him. As I said before, five dreams that direct Joseph. Four for Joseph, one for the Magi. God's plan of preservation included them fleeing to Egypt. You see down in verse uh, verse 13. He is warned in a dream, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And, and we might ask the question, well, why Egypt? Um, well, first of all, a powerful angelic being tells you to go to Egypt. So what are you going to do? You're going to go to Egypt, right? God directs him in that way. But it actually was a natural choice. It was a close journey, about 75 miles to the south. It was a Roman province, but it wasn't ruled, um, or it, had, it wasn't under the jurisdiction of Herod or any of his, of his minions. And so there was also a large Jewish population in Israel. Um, an author in AD 40 noted that there was approximately a million Jews living in Egypt at that time. So there was, largely, or there was a large enclave of Jews that they could have been with and could have been protected in this way. So Matthew picks up on God's preservation of, of Jesus to Egypt. But again, think about it. A savior has been born. The Messiah is coming. Hallelujah, the angels say. Rejoice over this king who's coming. And then just a year, maybe, maybe a year and a half into his life on earth, he flees to Egypt. He runs as a refugee in a foreign land, in a foreign place. He's not living in Bethlehem. He's not even living in Jerusalem or even in, in Galilee at this point. He's living in Egypt for an undisclosed part of time. What kind of a savior would do this, would go through this, would endure this, would travel in this way? Matthew picks up um, from Hosea 11.1, 1, where the prophet looks forward to the Lord's visit with a son. There's hints here, if you can see it, in verse 15. The prophet uh, would, uh, that the prophet would be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. What does this remind you of? What story in the Old Testament does it remind you of? Who called Israel out of Egypt back in the Old Testament? Moses, right? And so here we see Jesus going to Egypt, coming out of of, of, um, of Egypt in this way, just like the Israelites came out. And I think Matthew here is trying to point out the fact that here we have the true son of Israel. And in, in, in Jesus' lineage, we have um, over 15 different kings that are mentioned, from David to Solomon all the way down. 
And as these kings were coming and they were being born, surely the people were thinking, maybe this is the one, right? Maybe he's the one who's going to deliver us. Maybe this is the one to get rid of the Babylonians or the Assyrians or eventually the Greeks or the Romans. Maybe this will be the king who's going to come. But here Matthew points out the fact that Jesus is the true Israelite. He is the true son that they've been looking forward to, that God has promised for them. He is the one that's going to fulfill God's law. He is the one who's going to perfectly keep the commandments in a way that none of us can. This is the true Israelite that God is is highlighting here. He is the son. And in him, the father says, I am well pleased. And so this is uh, God preserving Jesus and bringing him out in this way. But again, we ask the question, what kind of a savior acts this way? Why would he go through this? Why would he endure persecution, suffer as a refugee, as an exile? And this leads to our third and final point about Jesus, our legitimate savior. And that is this that he identified with the lowly. If you've ever found yourself persecuted for the sake of Jesus, maybe it's just a little word. Maybe it's a a snub from a family member. Maybe it is the loss of a job or, or something against you. If you have ever felt like an outcast, that you don't belong, especially because you follow Jesus, because you want to give your life to him, please know that you are not alone, that Jesus identified with the lowly. Jesus was not only born into a unique family situation, okay, a virgin mother and a legal but not a biological father. That stigma carried with him all through his life, and we know later in his ministry that that came back. But also uh, the special magi who visited, um, and he had a very common, lowly life. This is seen in the text where uh, it says he moved to Egypt, but also where he grew up. So notice uh, in verse 19, Herod dies, an angel of the Lord comes again, appears to Joseph in, in Egypt, says, verse 20, get up, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Herod the Great dies, but unfortunately, uh, the son who replaces him, they divide his kingdom, the son who replaces him in Judea is not much better than he is. Um, this son, Archelaus, um, was the worst of his sons, Um, He did some awful things. He did some terrible things. He only ruled nine years. He was actually exiled towards the end, moved up to Gaul in modern-day France. Um, So instead of going to to Judea, to Bethlehem, where the family was, or to Jerusalem or somewhere, um, Joseph uh, is is led up up to the northern region. And if you know anything of Israel in this day, um, all the power, all the prominence, the prestige, the history, the tradition, it was all there in Judea, between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, the other cities. There wasn't a whole lot going on up in North Galilee, okay? And you can pick your podunk area. I don't want to smear anybody's hometowns, okay? But, but this, was, this was the backwoods area, okay? This was an area later that was, uh, had a lot of Roman uh, colonies uh, and, and cities, the Decapolis, for example. And so, out of uh, fleeing danger, this is where Joseph moves and where they settle in this region of Nazareth. Now, this region was ruled by another of Herod's sons, Herod Antipas, who was the one who would have John the Baptist killed, was also one that was consulted with Jesus' trial. But compared to his brother to the south, he wasn't quite as cruel, um, and he ruled about 40 years over this region. But Matthew's narrative of Jesus' early years ends with the note Verse 23, he came and settled in a city called Nazareth, 
This happens so that what was spoken through the prophets will be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. Kind of seems like a, a downer at the end of the story. All these fascinating things, comes out of Egypt, all these things, and he ends up in Nazareth. Chapter one of Jesus' life over. But actually, this detail reveals a remarkable thing about Jesus' birth in his early life. This legitimate king, this true Messiah, the son of David who was promised from ages and ages ago, who had these magi come and bring him miraculous gifts or, or amazing gifts, um, which probably funded their trip to Egypt. Um, it, it could have been used in that way. He has all of this happen, and yet he comes back and he settles in a small backwoods little town up in the north called Nazareth. Nazareth was so insignificant that there are no other extra biblical records of the town. There's one little mention in an obscure little Jewish text somewhere of this city, of of this town. Otherwise, we wouldn't even know outside of the Bible that it existed. We know that it was was looked down upon because in John 1, here's what uh, the apostles say when Jesus calls one of them. Uh, Nathaniel says, we found him of whom Moses wrote in the law, the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And remember what Nathaniel said to him? Can anything good be from Nazareth? <laughs> Philip said, come and see. Jesus saw Nathaniel come to him and said, here is truly an Israel and one in whom there is no deceit. There's probably a couple things he meant there. One, he spoke his mind, right? He didn't have a very good view of, of Nazareth in this way. You see, Nazareth is a tiny, insignificant little town, not mentioned in the Old Testament, not mentioned in other important Jewish writings. It's a blinker, you'll miss it. Okay, one stoplight kind of town in this way. And, and maybe, maybe to illustrate it this way, uh, basketball player Larry Bird, if you've heard of him. Um, all right, amen. Um, he was from a little town in Indiana called French Lick. It was one of those stoplight, blink, blink or you miss it kind of things. So his nickname that, that many called in college, and especially in the pros, was the Hick from French Lick. Okay, so the Hick from French Lick is drafted by the Boston Celtics goes on to have an amazing career there. So he lands in the middle of this massive city, bustling Boston, their New, New England um, accents and tone and all that. And so he was very much out of place, this hick from French Lick. Uh, closer to home for me, um, in eastern North Carolina, there's a town, I kid you not, called Tick Bite, North Carolina. Um, it's a blink of you'll miss it. It had one factory major employment and then it shut down. There's not a whole lot of commerce. There's not a whole lot there. In fact, really the only thing, if you asked Eastern North Carolinians about it, is that there was a big, uh, hurricane and flood that came through and devastated the area. That's about all that tick bite is known for. But imagine a kid growing up in tick bite, North Carolina with an Eastern North Carolina accent going and one day becoming the president of the United States. And no doubt like a politician would, he'd describe came from Tickbite, North Carolina, all the way to D.C. You know, they, they milk up their stories and their origin story, okay? In a similar way, Jesus could say, I came from this lowly, poor, insignificant, backwoods town called Nazareth. And in fact, in Acts, Christians were called the Nazarene sect as a slight or an insult against them. They weren't from Jerusalem. They weren't from Damascus or some important city. They were from, or their Savior was from Nazarene. And so we come back to our question, what kind of Savior would come and identify themselves with the lowly? Well, the kind that is Jesus. Jesus didn't come to make the Pharisees or Sadducees feel special about their religious works. He didn't come to give more powerful to those who are already powerful. 
He didn't come to merely show people that you can have a better life and pursue your dreams and get whatever you want. He didn't come to give more privilege to the privileged. He came to the lowly. He came to the outcast. He came to the sick. To those who know that they need help. To those that know they need a rescue. As, as I said in Mark, Mark 2, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so Jesus demonstrated this, his condescension, his humility, Philippians 2 says, by demonstrating it by growing up in a town called Nazareth, by living a common life. So common, in fact, that as he begins teaching and as he begins doing miracles and as he begins gathering crowds around, everybody who knew him from Nazareth was like, who is this? The carpenter's son from Nazareth? Jesus, he's the one doing this. He humbled himself. Philippians says, to the point of death on a cross so that he could rescue sinners, so that he could rescue those who know they need a rescue, so that he could rescue the brokenhearted and the weak and those who know I can't please God on my own. I can't, I can't play the charade. I can't play the act and fool God into thinking that he should accept me. Fool God in thinking that I'm not insecure, that I'm not arrogant, that I haven't rebelled against God. This is the kind of Savior that God sends. This is the kind of Messiah that God sends that Matthew records here in this text. And so we've seen a contrast between these two kings. One who was arrogant, who was insecure, who did everything he could to maintain and grasp power, even dabbling in some religion on the side to get favor. And on the other hand, we have a king who was praised by Gentiles, whose very life had to be preserved by God because of those persecuting him, who identified in all of his life with the lowly. And so it leads us to this question. Who will be king of your life? As we said before, we look at Herod and we're like, yeah, he's bad. He's rotten. He's terrible. Good riddance, right? And yet we saw that the attitudes in Herod are found in each and every one of us. Matthew 2, 19 indicates that Herod died. His reign was over. His kingdom was divided between his sons. They were, many of them, exiled by the end of their life and died. And eventually Rome came in and ruled directly. Herod and his lineage had no more say or no more power in this way. So he didn't even have a, a, a lineage to lead after him. But Jesus, this legitimate king, not only did he come in a humble way, but he is coming back. You see, this was the end of Herod's story in verse 19, but this is not the end of Jesus' story. He humbled himself. He came and, and he bore the sins of you, you, your sins and my sins on the cross so that we could have freedom, so that we could have victory. He rose victorious from the death, from the dead to defeat sin and defeat death. He went back to heaven, but one day he is going to return. One day he is going to come in power and authority and in judgment. He is going to show that he is the legitimate king, that he is the legitimate judge. He's going to come and he's going to conquer those who, like Herod, refuse to bow their knee to him. So the question is, who will be king of your life? Do you live like a little Herod inside of you? Have you bowed your knee to Jesus, placed your trust in what he has done for you? Maybe, like Frank Sinatra, you're pretty much living life your way. You're hoping it's going to make out in the end. God's going to understand. He's, he's going to be okay with you in the end. 
But Scripture says, no, after you die, after this, judgment will come. And if you stand in your own righteousness, if you stand in your own rebellion and arrogance against God, you will be judged forever in separation from him in a place called hell. But the beauty of the first coming of Jesus is that you don't have to stay living as your own king. That, that freedom and rescue from self-rule comes if you will bow the knee to Christ. If you will confess your sins to him, if you will trust in what Jesus did on the cross as the only way to earn God's favor. So I urge you, if you have not bowed the knee to Christ, do it today. Bow the knee and trust in him. Don't arrogantly trust in your own strength, ability, or power like Herod or the Jewish leaders. Trust Christ today. But then my appeal would be to, to those of you who say, I have bowed the knee to Christ. I have given my life to him. I have placed my trust in him, and, and I know that my sins are forgiven. If we're honest, we often can slip into the Frank Sinatra syndrome, right? How often do we kind of crawl back on the throne of authority in our lives? As Romans 12 says, we need to daily surrender ourselves to God. We need to daily, as a living sacrifice, give ourselves to God. And so my basic question for for believers who've trusted in Christ is, where are you ascending on the throne of your life? Where is there um, maybe rebellion in your heart or areas that you are not um, not humbly confessing to God. And especially as we think about this year of 2024, where are your priorities? If we were to take a, a, a list maybe of your plans for the year, your ambitions, your desires for this year or five years or 10 years regarding your finances, regarding your family and your role, regarding your job, regarding uh, your, your neighbors, your community, what the desires of your heart are. Does it line up with one who says, God is, is king of my life, that he is on the throne? Or would you say, there are times in which I've slipped into worshiping myself, master of my own life? I'd encourage you as you look at this king, as you look at Jesus coming for the lowly, preserved by God in this way, to, to surrender to him and his plan. The Bible says that we make plans, we make ambitions, we have desires, we have things, but at the end of a day, at the end of a month, at the end of a year, we don't know the, the certainty of our steps. We're not guaranteed a good job or secure health or, or harmony or fam- or, or, or in our relationships or in our family. We are not guaranteed that. And so it's important that we trust our lives in God's hands, that daily we give ourselves to him and we say, God, you be my king. You know You know better than I do. Just like you preserved Jesus, just like you were steps ahead of Herod's plans and all through Jesus' life and ministry, God, you know best. I want to surrender my life to you. I want to give my life to you and honor you each day. Let's pray. God, thank you for the powerful narrative, uh, the symbols, the pictures that point to incredible truths of your, your preservation, of Jesus' humility, his condescension to come, to earth, to humble himself, to live among us, to give himself as a ransom for many. We thank you and praise you for God God for that. And we ask God that you would help us to be honest. Help each man and woman here to be honest. If they have not bowed the knee to Christ, that they would do so. They would give up trying, that they would surrender and trust Christ. And for those who have, God, help us each day to be reminded of your authority, your wisdom, your plan for us, that we would not arrogantly assert ourselves on the throne, but we would entrust ourselves to you.
We ask that you would work in our hearts according to your will.